0: Namor tasa bhagavato arahato samma sammuto tasamor tasa bhagavato arahato samma sammuto tasamor tasa bhagavato arahato samma sammuto tasamor this is the full moon of the month of May, and it's the first day of May. So in this month there are two full moons, one at the beginning and one at the end. <laughs> and, and I hear in Sri Lanka they celebrate the first full moon as Visaka Puja. And in Thailand, they celebrate the second full moon, as we puja <laughs> so These are cultural differences choices that are made in the in the within the same tradition and so the full moon of may is uh, very auspicious because this uh, presents the birth, the enlightenment, and the uh, death or the ending So, in the terms of the Lord Buddha in India 2,550 years ago. Uh, And of course in Theravada Buddhism it's all on the full moon of May. He was born, enlightened, and died. So this makes Theravada one of the most kind of neat packages you can find. But it also, uh, you know, to a Western mind, you think, oh, that's impossible. Nobody could possibly be born enlightened and die on the full moon of May. That's just... uh, Religious hyperbole, but, and that's a Western type of mindset. You know, you you think you want things to be to make sense according to reason and views of of our own cultural attitudes. But in uh, in religion, especially something as old as Buddhism, as memory is, uh, it's it doesn't matter the uh, you know, we aren't asking for historical accuracy. It's not meant to be based on history and and accurate dates and so forth. Uh, but that, but uh, it's uh, certainly a good reflection to to have to make, and that that the birth is the beginning of of a human life, and then death. And that is the end. And then between those two points, between birth and death, is enlightenment. So, this enlightenment then, that this is what everybody, all of us have been born, and we'll all die. And we will all be enlightened, maybe. <laughs> but this is like reflecting on this enlightenment is the is is here and now and within the uh, limitations of human uh, the human form the body itself uh, the karmic conditions we find ourselves with the way we are and then the the enlightenment is the awakened consciousness so just contemplate, you know, like when, when we are born, um, then we, when, when a baby is born, then it starts its life as a separate physical entity uh, that's conscious. So that is, this is, the, this is, these are the facts. In other words, the, the beginning of a life of one human individual as a conscious being. And then after birth comes the conditioning. So we acquire the values, the, the ethnic values, religious values, social identities and so forth that, that our parents have, that our peer group identifies with our culture. And that conditioning process then uh, forms our personalities, our, 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 uh, we develop our emotional reactions, emotional habits, our likes and dislikes, our prejudices and preferences and so forth after, after we're born. That doesn't come with consciousness, with the rising of consciousness, but after, after birth, then we acquire cultural conditioning and the personality and then enlightenment is the uh, and if we don't if we aren't enlightened between birth and death then we we tend to carry that conditioning through to the death so we carry these this these prejudices these biases cultural views <clears throat> and so forth too and they affect our death our physical death so the Buddha pointed to the reality of enlightenment between those two points of birth and death and that's called enlightenment put it in the simpler terms it's awakened consciousness so consciousness is uh, what we're experiencing right now it's uh, we, we, you know it's not a created state we don't Make ourselves conscious. You don't create it as some some invention that you get from cultural conditioning or from emotional habits, because it is is, is what we call a natural. It's it's nature, consciousness, nature, dhamma. These words you can use interchangeably, but then. We create ourselves as personalities. So I create myself as a Buddhist monk, as a teacher, or uh, you know, whatever race, gender, identity, national identity, class, religious. Those those are created into consciousness through the conditioning process. So enlightenment then, when we Talk about enlightenment, is the awakened to pure consciousness So and recognizing it's real, it's, it's a natural state, it's not, a, uh, it's not tainted with cultural biases or preferences of any sort. So awakened consciousness, consciousness itself to me it, you know it implies intelligence, sensitivity, it's uh, it's the ability to know. It's not we're not. It's not a, a just a, a kind of. It's not something that that lacks intelligence, or is just a kind of empty void, uh, uh, a kind of void of nothingness. Consciousness is is uh, it's impossible to define or describe, but we certainly can recognize it, because this is what we are experiencing now. And so mindfulness then is the way to recognize, to realize pure consciousness. Through awareness, what we call awareness, or in the Pali language, sati sampacchanya. Mindfulness, they use the English word mindfulness, clear comprehension, translating sampachanya's clear comprehension or apprehension. And then in our capacity as the human individual, human individual form, when we're mindful, then we recognize, we realize this is it, consciousness is this. It's we say it's not a separate self. If, as soon as I claim it as a mine my consciousness that's a cultural conditioning isn't it that that takes the the process of thinking my language my consciousness i create those words and claim it but if i don't think about it and just recognize it just attentiveness attention awareness Mindfulness, these words convey this simplicity of enlightenment, a weakened consciousness here and now. So you see the enlightenment is not some kind of remote possibility uh, in the future or something that is beyond anyone's potential. Even though when we when we have views about enlightenment, define enlightenment, have uh, doubts about it or whatever, theories, philosophies, then of course we can make it into something very difficult, very special, very refined, very remote, arcane, very high. So, we began to notice that that when we when we follow just the thinking process, we tend to complicate every moment of our lives. Life is no longer simplicity of the uh, ultimate simplicity of consciousness, but it becomes much more. I create myself, my views, my opinions, I create you, my prejudices, my fears and desires and loves and hates and so forth and that becomes increasingly complicated. You know when your personalities are complications of everything. Language itself, if not, if just used out of habit, tends to make things, you know, either very high, you you adore them as as, as so high ab- above you that you can never expect to reach that high, or it goes to the opposite extreme to the to the lower depths. Language itself is a dualistic function of the mind. Now all it can do is create the extremities. You know, so we we identify with extremity. Your personality is an extremity, isn't it? What, uh, your, all your identities create some form of division, so in whatever nationality you identify with it always separates you from the rest. Or if you're male or female, if that's your identity then that, that creates the division. There's there's men then there's women, two separate uh, entities. And then our reality depends on on that identity. Or on Theravada Buddhism versus Mahayana Buddhism or Buddhism versus Christianity. It goes on endlessly and when we try to analyze or we we can think about the forest tradition and the and the town tradition in Thailand for example. The Wat Ba and the Wat Ba. We divide and separate and then one opposed to the other. But in pure awareness, there's union. It's a unitive reality. So in other words, the Buddha is, uh, you know, the opportunity we have to awaken to the real. At the mealtime I welcome the nuns from Chitzers. Welcome to what the, the Deathless of the Real or something like <laughs> uh, The name Amarvati means deathless realm. And that there's a kind of sci fi Buddhist type movie called The Matrix. Welcome to the desert of the real. So reality, you know, when when we talk about dhamma or dharma, this this word dhamma is reality. is real. It's not it's not metaphysical or theoretical. Even though when we try to define it and talk about it in in in, uh, in you know through definitions through uh, various words and preferences and attitudes, then it can be used as a metaphysical positioning, or uh, you know we can we can create all kinds of complexities around the word dhamma so rather than do that uh, the 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 simplicity of the path the awakened consciousness is not to, to find out the true meaning of Dhamma through definitions, but awa- awakening to the reality, to reality of consciousness here and now. Because this, this just takes the simple imminent act of awareness. It's like switching on the light, really. It's not, nothing complicated. Complex. Now when you try to think about it, it becomes complicated. Uh, How do you, how do you awaken? (laughs) Tell me Ajahn Samedo, how do I wake up? It's kind of a silly question, isn't it? Well I can, I can write out a, you know, a kind of plan of practice for you uh, over the years, Uh, you go from one stage to the next, uh, gradual awakening process, that if you follow this uh, maybe you might eventually before you die wake up. And you might actually believe me if I if I gave you that. You might have so much confidence in me that you'll just believe everything I say. So you Ajahn Tomato said, Ajahn Tomato told me to do this, and and I've done that. Now I'm on the second stage now, and uh, I'm going on a retreat, hope to reach the third stage by the end of the year. <laughs> and I've heard Buddhists talk like this, you know, going through various stages of of awakening and meditation practice, because that's the that. The thinking mind operates like that. Thinking mind is structure, it's form, its hierarchy. You have one to one to a million, you have A to Z. You have to have, you know, so you can only have one thought at a time. You can't think two thoughts in the same moment. A and B you can have to you have to put one first. Say B first or A first but you can't say them at the same moment or think them at the same moment. But if you let go of the thinking process, that doesn't mean you stop thinking or you annihilate thinking, but your relationship to thinking is with awareness. So thinking then becomes more of a skillful means, a tool rather than something that one clings to and uh, doesn't, 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 uh, doesn't even notice that you're clinging and attached to thoughts, to ideas, to perceptions, to conventions. So when we talk about the personality, you know, sakya ditti in Pali, the sakya ditti is the first fetter, the first obstruction, that binds us to the world of birth and death and it's only through uh, penetrating what is the personality, sakya dhiti. And the way to do that then is to notice not we're not trying to get rid of personality but to put it in its proper place because personality is changing, it arises ceases, it depends whether you're happy person, or unhappy person, or a good person, a bad person, whatever kind of person, whatever quality, intelligent or stupid, or whatever it is, these are words, these are concepts, these are qualities, quantities. These are created by us. Out of ignorance of Dhamma. But that which is aware, that's pure consciousness. Consciousness with awareness then is uh, the way that one can observe, notice, recognize Sakyaditi. It's as simple as that nothing, nothing beyond anyone's ability. But just noticing it it's I listen, I you know I listen to my personality, I know what it is, but then awakened consciousness is real it's not it's not a creative state. I don't create it, but i can, I recognize it, it's just this. Then the sakyaditi, no problem. Have a personality or non personality doesn't matter anymore. Personality isn't, isn't in itself is not an obstruction. It's the attachment, the identity, the unquestioned, blind uh, kind of commitment to the personality that is the fetter or the thing that binds us to the realm of suffering. So in a situation like this, a monastic Buddhist monastery, monastic form like Anagarika parish, took, uh, asked for the uh, Anagarika training this evening uh, in which he uh, asked to be trained and within the structure of a monastery. So the Anagarika is is like a novice or beginning stage where you make a commitment to a convention. So the convention is uh, the you know the Theravada Buddhism on the Amaravati here there, and then we and this is this is just conventional. Then how to use the convention and not to identify with it not to create just another I am an Anagorika I'm a Theravada Buddhist <laughs> so forth but to, to uh, you know we're not here to to just put on a costume change the change the way we look but use the convention for awakened, for awakenedness, for awareness. So this is where we need to to clarify, to make it very clear why we're doing this, why we are samanas, monks and nuns. Why we choose to do this uh, It's not to, to become anything or attain or have some kind of social role or position or a, a personal identity with the convention, but it's a convention that's to be used, it's a functional thing for, to, to aid, to remind us, to be aware, to trust our awareness, awaken consciousness. So in daily life, in the monastic form, it's a, it makes life much more simple. The samana life is, is taking taking you know reducing the complications <clears throat> that we generally have that we might have if we were not samanas. Because the the structure is a, it's a traditional structure. So it's not, it's not like a modern creation or. It's not my, my kind of views. It follows an ancient tradition from India. So it, it's, you know, it's uh, something that has, has historical, uh, has it connected to history, connected in time. As we conceive of it, it's 2,550 years ago in India, the time of the Buddha. Gautama the Buddha. But the teaching that the Buddha gave was one of awakened consciousness. You know it was the whole point the reason why Buddhism now is so admired and, uh, and beginning to to be recognized and appreciated in countries like this is because it's based on universal reality. It's not just about a culture or about India or about Asia or about an ancient time. It's about the problem, the delusions around being a human being and the suffering that we create through those delusions. So that's still, you know, even though one can say it's an ancient religion, the human problem is just the same as it was then does not change. Ignorance of the Dhamma, consciousness that is merely clouded with a sense of self and prejudices and biases only leads to suffering, unhappiness, dissatisfaction. So we can see it so plainly in, in so much of our own lives and living uh, you know from is that you find that so many of the the, the Western world that's attracted to Buddhist meditation oftentimes from affluent countries, economically stable, um, oftentimes middle-class backgrounds, educated. And this this means that it's, it, it's this kind of mindset, isn't it? You have enough, you you have, you can have pretty much what you want but it's still no no matter how much you get or how much freedom you have or rights or privileges or luxuries, one still suffers. One still feels discontented or unhappy or incomplete. And so this is, uh, you know, so we recognize that we it's not a matter of just keep on trying to get more and more of everything but maybe we have to look at it in a different way. Waking up or reflecting, beginning to observe, notice, consider and recognize and realize. So using this tradition then means that the point is to it's uh, based on moral precepts. So, like the, the eight precepts that anagaka Parish took this evening, that those are, say, the boundaries for action and speech, for behavior. Agreed boundaries that he asked for. We're not kind of forcing them, uh, making him do it. He, he He requested to take these precepts. So, this means that he's you know, he's, he's willing to accept these limits, these boundaries on behavior, on action and speech. Now, just because you can recognize the value of these boundaries doesn't mean you always want to live within the boundaries. <laughs> because the desire, isn't it? Desire and habit and willfulness and pride and all these things kind of you know we want to do it our way or get our own way or follow our own desires but when you when you make a put on a limitation like this in, in a traditional form you know it it it's kind of it registers quite strongly in consciousness it's not just uh something you just chant in kind of empty ceremony, but we try to make it into something significant so it it has a, a strong impression on your life rather than just well. you just go and take the eight precepts by yourself you know it doesn't matter you don't need to go through the ceremony you just you know read them and and uh, take them and keep them if you can you know and say we could just do it in this off way or we can make it into a ceremony where we all gather and and like Paris requests, and we give it in a for formal way, because through these formal ceremonies, something it makes it it raises it up; it makes it more significant uh, in our conscious experience. It's not just offhanded, uh, secretly done by oneself. Well, observe what that does. You know the effect that that has. You know, it, it does make it, somehow makes it more, more important. It kind of, what do they call that? Uh, kind of registers in our consciousness. Uh, and so, and then for uh, determining one year. So that the time that, that you know, that one has uh, been asked to, to re- to live within these boundaries for one year. This has a powerful influence on consciousness because in the life itself, of course, we go through various forms of love, hate, liking, disliking, being, you know, liking the form and respecting it and then feeling irritated and fed up with it, like anything else, like any other convention, any other creation. You know we we have various emotional reactions to form to structure to traditions to the the people we 're living with often many many times we feel very you know we expect a lot from from we ex- maybe we're very idealistic, thinking all the monks, all the nuns are completely unselfish highly attained. Uh, beings you know without any selfish neurotic qualities and then when you're living with us you begin to discover that's not true (laughs) (laughs) so then you (laughs) and then you think well obviously you know one can develop disappointment or disillusionment but these are all part of of the training to observe this yeah, when, as long as we look outward, looking for perfection and and expect and, and have these expectations on uh, on those outside us, or in even on uh, expecting to, uh, to uh, a lot from becoming a samana or from a tradition, we're inevitably going to be disappointed in it. Expectation is a condition we create, and then we expect so much and when we don't get what we expect then we feel disappointed, despairing. Now awareness is our ability to observe this. The way we, we, you know, our idealism, our attachment to ideals and, and our, the way we project outwardly onto the the people around us or the situation we're in. Our ideals and expectations and desires and then and then, feeling disillusioned, disappointed when we don't when things aren't what they what we've expected them to be or want them to be, so instead of looking for for perfection, what we're encouraged to do here is to notice this, this grasping quality of wanting something of projecting. Our ideals outward onto the, onto others, or the, onto a, a society, or a place, or a tradition. Or the way we hold ourselves, the way we can, you know, expect or be very self-critical. We expect ourselves to, to be maybe a, a very good, loving, compassionate. Uh, monk or nam. You know, on, we don't want to be selfish and mean-hearted and cruel and petty about things. And then, but then sometimes we find ourselves feeling like that. We have emotions, certain conditions arise. We feel, you know, selfish and mean-hearted and lacking in compassion and kindness and angry and so forth, and then we can think we're not very good. We feel ashamed of ourselves. We feel guilty. Now, with awareness, then we're awakening to this, to our, our idealism, to our, our disappointment, to the, the the way we regard ourselves, the the suffering we create, the guilt that we feel, the despair. The, dis, the disillusionment, the resentments, the jealousies and fears the 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 various forms of greed, lust, and so forth that arise in consciousness now recognize that that these are conditions that arise and cease, all forms of greed, hatred, and delusion, anger, and fear they are not they have no permanent. They can't sustain themselves. They arise according to conditions. They depend on other conditions, and they, so they have no self-sustaining ability. Or the sense of yourself on a personal level, you can't sustain it. You can't sustain your personality as one, you know, as a good person or bad person or anything else. It changes, doesn't it? it Changes according to the conditions. And this we observe in meditation. Observing the changingness. That we're actually experiencing. Through the senses. Through what we see. Hear, smell, taste, touch. Think. Our emotions. The world around us. The weather. The the heat, the cold. uh, All these affect us here and now. And the awareness then is the constant factor is that which is constant through the changingness. And that's why the Buddha emphasized mindfulness is the path to the deathless is, a, is, a, is liberation itself. Mindfulness awareness enlightenment. Because awareness, consciousness is self sustaining you don't i don't have to create it and make it It is not dependent on conditions being special in any way you know whether it 's peaceful or confused whether it's you know things are inspiring or depressing or right or wrong, good or bad, war or peace or whatever consciousness. We can always recognize that we're conscious through these changing conditions. This consciousness then, the way that we, because it's it's not something you can find but something you recognize through letting go of the conditions that you create out of ignorance. So then when like in Vipassana meditation or insight practices, it's, it's letting go of condition. Not, it's not an annihilation or a rejection. So letting go doesn't mean a, an aversion and a rejection of anything. It means releasing your, this blind grip, this clutching, grasping tendency, this, this habit of grasping that we, we're so used to we don't even know we're doing it till we suddenly recognise why do I suffer over this? What is wrong that I feel like this? And then you find, you know, you're holding on, you're clinging to something or other. Some idea, some ideal, some habits Assumption, pride, conceit—something that we're 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 blindly clutching at, holding to—and that is the suffering that we create out of ignorance. When we begin to notice it awaken to it, then then we we uh, we have the insight of letting go. I mean, stop grasping, stop holding, tensing your life and trying to hold on to everything and control everything and manipulate. But it's more like a sense of relaxing, releasing. So it is a sense of being at peace and at ease with pure consciousness and with all the conditions that create this view of separation, loneliness, inadequacy, dissatisfaction or whatever the conditions for that fall away because your refuge is in the unconditioned. You're not taking refuge in conditions because you realize that you can't do it. There's no refuge in wealth or position or identity or uh, convention of any sort. Now it seems very you know, one of the the kind of hopeful signs of this time. This is my opinion, anyway. <laughs> it's uh it's just this: the, the awakeness that's taking place. This, uh, you know, why do why are people interested in this kind of teaching now? Why would you have a Theravadan Buddhist monastery in Hertfordshire? You know. It, it, now, there's never been a Buddhist monastery in Hertfordshire before. And it's certainly, you know, kind of, it's, it's, we've only been here at this particular spot since 1984. That's not all that long, is it? So, 20, almost 25 years, but that's not a very long time. And my interest, of course, has been in Buddhism, began 50 years ago, over 50 years ago. So I've seen, you know, over 50 years of my life, adult life, uh, a growing interest in these kinds of teachings, in awareness practices, both in Buddhism and in other religions, in psychology and so forth, There's a growing, increasing amount of, of um, awakeness taking place say 50 years ago, to find anyone, any Western person who had any any kind of knowledge other than a kind of, you know, en- um, encyclopedia Britannica knowledge of Buddhism was very rare. You know, when you talk to people about what they, 50 years ago about Buddhism, they, they connected it with uh, with uh, a pot-bellied incense burners because I remember they used to have these these funny little fat Buddhas with uh, you burned incense, you know incense and you burned incense on them and they thought that was Buddhism. And then of course the arrogance of Western, of Western society is you know being I was brought up as a Christian, where you're told all other religions are wrong. So you've got this, this, this cultural bias, that, a religious bias, that, that Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, they're all you know pagan religions and so they're, they're wrong. So that's the, that's the cultural conditioning. So it's easy to dismiss if you're culturally conditioned to think my religion is right and uh, therefore the rest are all wrong. That is a that's a created state isn't it? That's a prejudice you acquire. That's not Dhamma or truth. And yet one can attach to that view and operate one's whole life through that bias. Or this awakening to the the uh, way things are to Dhamma means that we we're no longer just operating from cultural biases or religious biases. We're not operating from religious doctrinal positions. When people ask about when you go to interfaith meetings in this country and they ask about Buddhism doesn't believe in God and then they Theistic religions find that very distressing because uh, to them you have to believe in God. And Buddhism doesn't speak like that. It doesn't come from a doctrine around, about God. And so therefore they think it is a kind of atheistic or assume from their position, their, their religious conditioning, that it's, you know, it's a godless religion. But then, what what interests me is not to whether you believe in God or not, but what do you mean by that word? What does you know when you take the word God in, in English word? What do you mean? What it, what is it really? What is God? And then they then they you know then they t- they try to tell you you have to believe in something that they that they tell you about the day that you get a definition or a doctrine. So you end up maybe grasping a view about God. Now the Buddha in his his approach didn't never never really didn't approach it from that level. It's not a matter of believing or disbelieving. but taking this human experience and exploring it to awaken to consciousness. So in this way consciousness God could be same thing wouldn't it? But then this is getting into intellectual speculation again which I don't want to get in. <laughs> but if you notice like the Buddha uh, in his sermon first sermon was talking about suffering, uh, human suffering the most ordinary human experience. We all share, isn't it? We all suffer, we have to admit it. Every human being. So this is, this, is, this is to be understood. So starting from here and now, from our own sense of feeling inadequate or frightened or doubtful or in whatever form our suffering might manifest at this moment we begin to notice it. Because this is not a doctrine anymore. It, it's, a, it's a noble truth. You start looking, noticing, rather than merely ignoring it, passing it by, suppressing it, or resenting it, taking it personally, feeling that there's something wrong with you because you should be happy and you're not. According to the ideals of modern life we should be happy life is a banquet have a have a you know enjoy it you get these kind of philosophies just enjoy everything you know have a have a good time and I think we've all tried that approach trying to just be happy and enjoy life only <laughs> it you know after a while it all falls flat doesn't it just this desire for happiness, uh trying to distract yourself endlessly with sensory pleasures, uh, interesting things to do, fascinating friends, or adventures, romance, excitement, and all the rest. How can you sustain that for very long? You know, it one get wears out, one burns out with that desire for happiness, and can only feel disappointed again. So, taking suffering and examining it, investigating, looking, observing, it, to do this, then is awakening to it. Suddenly, we recognize, "Oh yes, yes, this this is dukkha, this is suffering. This feeling of just not feeling happy or feeling uncertain or." inadequate, it's like, this. just uh, aware of it, I'm I'm the, the conscious, it's in consciousness but I'm not grasping it, I'm looking at it, I'm recognizing I begin to see suffering not as something to resist or suppress or run from, but to recognize and in that imminent act of recognition, of awareness they're letting go of it. You begin to notice it in terms of the reality of it, its, its presence, its power, its quality, but your relationship to it is recognizing it, knowing it, and letting it be what it is. And then, of course, you're aware of it as impermanent. You can't sustain suffering through awareness of it. You can think you suffer all the time if you're unaware. If you're not mindful, then you might think, I suffer all the time, know. Uh, my life is a misery. Wherever I go, I'm miserable. Suffering is the ultimate reality. <laughs> the really depressing view. But if you if you use awakenedness, consciousness, to recognize, then in that very recognition you've let go, there's the letting go and then everything, all conditions are impermanent so that the suffering that we, we, we feel from grasping that, that dissolves that disappears and so we recognize or realize Dhamma it's real. It's not a wobbly, delicate, precious state of that we have to spend our lives trying to control and protect ourselves in order to have it. This is this is like when I mean, they talk about uh, in Pali a gupa muti. It means the unshakable deliverance of the heart. This aguppa means unshakable, jado vimuti of the of consciousness, jado vimuti unshakable. So we, we we recognize it because it isn't something you don't have. You just don't recognize it. You you don't notice because you're always grasping all the shakable things. Anything that's shakable, you grasp it. <laughs> so. So what do you expect? <laughs> You're set up for disappointment and suffering. So in the in the encouragement here uh, is to cultivate this. The life here, this is its purpose. It's not to become a Buddhist monk or nun, or you know, to not for historical reasons or trying to protect an ancient tradition from dying out. It's not about trying to revive uh, Buddhism or convert Europeans into Buddhists or anything. It's not anything like that. And not at least, you know, I don't recommend that as an attitude to, to grasp. But recognize that the whole purpose, thrust of this life is for, is this enlightened awareness. Recognizing that and cultivating that in daily life. Trusting it. Now our conditioning is is to mistrust it. You know the self, the personality will always be full of doubt and uncertainty about yourself, about the tradition, about Buddhism, about everything. You know so that's the thinking mind, it will inevitably take us to uncertainty and doubt. But then, in, uh, with awareness, we, beca- we, we awaken to this doubting tendency, the thinking mind, the feeling of of, of insecurity, things like that, emotions, feelings of feeling insecure, uncertain, unsure, frightened, anxious, worried about, you, you're awakening to these, where these kind of mental states are seen in terms of what they really are. Conditions, they've arisen, they cease. <clears throat> and our refuge then is not in trying to destroy them or annihilate anything, but in using this opportunity to recognize this is the real, welcome to the real, welcome to the deathless of the real. (laughs) So I will end here. This is enough for one evening.